This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. As we look to the future, it's vital we seek insight and perspective from future leaders. Young people, especially women, with a strong sense of justice and bold visions for how the world should look and operate. You're here with Kate Mills, and I'm the host of Women's Agenda's new podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by youth activist and social commentator Yasmin Poole. At just 22 years old, Yasmin's CV is already prolific. Regarded as a human megaphone for Gen Z, she's an ambassador for Plan International Australia, a social entrepreneur and an agenda setter for equality across the board. Several world leaders would do well to heed her advice. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Yasmin. So, Yasmin, fantastic that you could be with us here today for Women's Agenda. We really appreciate it. Um, you are um, described as a human megaphone for Gen C. Um, you're the chair of the Victorian government's Youth Congress. Um, you've led a global business um, development of 180 degrees consulting, which is a youth-led social impact consultancy. What haven't you done, Yasmin, I'm beginning to think. Um, so, look, tell me a little bit about your career. Did you always want to work in this area? Where did you get your first start? I think for me, the beginning was um, all the way back when I just graduated from high school and I'd taken a gap year and I was working full time and I was going, you know, making $12 an hour, nothing glamorous at all and thinking, you know, what's something that I want to do with my life? What do I actually want to do with my life? And that's a question that I think every young person is is thinking. So it started off with volunteering for a couple of youth-led NGOs, um, nothing spectacular, just coming in once a week and, and helping out. But for me, what was transformative through that experience was actually going into an organization that was entirely led by young people. And, you know, someone straight out of high school, that was, that was something that I never saw. I always thought that leadership was older, um, largely white men, to be honest. And that's the image that I thought of, you know, CEO, higher leadership. So for the first time, I was in a space where it was entirely commanded by young people who were lobbying and running campaigns and and genuinely just pursuing things that they felt really strongly about. And to me, it was the realization that, oh, I might be 18, but I have just as much of a right to start now and pursue what I what I want to see changed. And that's what I did. So that sounds amazing. And I really want to explore some of the things that you've brought up there. You said you were graduated from high school, you're making some money, but then you started to ask, well, what more should I do? You know, and you said that's a question that you think everyone is asking. Do you think this generation asks it more than previous generations? I guess the difference with this generation is that the nature of, of work and how we view career is changing. So from my understanding, you know, the more traditional concept of work is finding, you know, one job or career and kind of sticking with it and using it mainly to, you know, make money and find stability. But the way that young people are viewing the nature of work now is not only going to work and coming back, but it's how can I make impact within that sphere and within that scope of work? And that means that the nature of work for young people is not sticking with one career. In fact, young people are estimated to have, I think if the statistic was 17 jobs across five different careers. But I think the question on young people's mind is how can I combine um, work with making a genuine difference? And I think that's why you've seen more young people than ever um, launching startups, social enterprise, and really thinking critically about making impact within their 
within their sphere and scope. So let's stay on that point a moment. Um, so you're talking there about how can I, um, you know, work but also have impact. And, and you say, and that's why people have moved off to do startups and social enterprise. Is traditional work open to that? And by traditional work, I mean, you know, you're more big corporates essentially. Are they really open to young people coming in and saying, yes, I'm happy to work for you, but I also want to make impact? Do, do you hear that? Um, I think it depends on the corporate and I've had mixed experiences. You know, in some I was, you know, I was fortunate to do a keynote for PwC and, and they've really taken on that, the importance of the diversity in thinking because I think the importance is to realise it's not just having young people for the sake of young people. Young people are important because they are inherently risk-taking, open-minded, innovative. Um, you know, they haven't grown up surrounded by the structures and learned to internalise them. You know, this, it's something that they're really thinking critically about. So that's useful and of value. So I've had experiences with you know, corporates that want to hear these perspectives. Um, you know, but I think if, even if we look at the biggest institution of them all, Parliament, right, um, we, we still see an absence of youth consultation. There's no federal youth advisory board, very, very minimal amount of young politicians. Um, so if we look at that as a barometer for how young people are being heard, I, I think it's still, it's still pretty poor. So what I'm trying to stress is that it's not we shouldn't be incorporating young people for the tokenism of it. Young people seriously bring value and the ability to future-proof an organisation and future-proof, um, you know, wider Australian. And that's why I've been fortunate. You know, re- recently I've been nominated as the uh, non-executive director of Oz Harvest, which is Australia one of Australia's largest food rescue charities. And that was with the interest and desire to hear from a youth perspective and how we can engage young people in not only the climate crisis but food sustainability. So I think organisations are coming around and realising the value, but there's still a lot of work to go. Do you think our view of what leadership should look like is changing or is it still, as you said, you know, um, it's, it's more, it's older, it's male, it's white, etc. or is that moving? Well, I think if we look at the current leaders, it still very much looks like the conventional status quo leadership that we often see. And that is old white and male. It's, you know, that's, that is really what it looks like. If you look at the COVID-19 response and something that I pointed out, um, you know, Scott Morrison, Greg Hunt, Brennan Murphy, it's still very much led by conventional status quo leadership. In saying that, I like to think that the tide is changing, especially generationally. And we also look to leaders like, you know, Jacinda Ardern, who really does even symbolically um, change and open, even open the door in terms of young women thinking that, yeah, maybe I can be in these spaces. So I think the nature of leadership is evolving, at least in certainly in my generation, absolutely. But if we look at the actual effects and look at the number of um, you know, women in CEO positions or the number of um, culturally diverse Australians in political leadership roles. It's got such, such a long way to go. So you represent a lot of that change. Um, what, what's your view on your style of leadership and where have, you, uh, where have you learned it? Where have you perfected it, your style of leadership? I think for me, probably my um, first real experience of figuring out who I wanted to be as a leader And something I always say is that if you want to be a leader, you have to understand yourself. That is absolutely the first part of being a leader Um, beyond um, just the, you know, the optics of, of having a leadership role. There has to be internal understanding. And for me, it was leading the Victorian Government's Youth Congress. It essentially was representing over a million young Victorians, advising the Minister for Youth on youth policy that we wanted to see reformed. And that was me leading, I think, around 20 young Victorians 
And it was a really diverse group of young people. We had Indigenous, you know, refugee people that experienced disability, uh, mental health issues, um, really just uh, homelessness, a huge variety. And what was unique about that experience is that, in a way, that diversity gave me the space to explore who I wanted to be as a leader. And something that I've grown to realize is that I even use things like my cultural strengths. I, I view it as cultural strengths. So as an Asian Australian, you know, Asian Australians can often be held back from leadership positions because they're seen as, as too passive or, you know, not challenging hierarchy. But the way that I view, you know, my experiences as an Asian Australian means that in my leadership, I'm far more, com- I'm far more comfortable not being the loudest person in the room and actually taking on a more facilitative approach and a more consensus-based model and really thinking about, okay, how do we tease out, you know, what people are really thinking and feeling, especially those that may be more quiet. And that's something that I did, that I did with Youth Congress and really kind of tapping into to those cultural, cultural elements, I think, for me um, and what felt right. And that's something that I've gone with ever since because I realized that, again, the conventional form of leadership can often be, you know, be the loudest person, have the firmest handshake, um, you know, kind of have that dominating dominating role. And that never felt comfortable for me. It's interesting, isn't it? You're making me think of Trump and his handshakes, you know, that sort of handshake battle. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, such a wrong message to send that that is the one type of leadership. And that's something that I've always emphasized. Um, You know, Australia and and the world, we're facing a huge variety of problems made even worse by this pandemic. And it's just not the right approach to only support one type of leadership. Yet overwhelmingly seeing a lack of diversity in leadership positions indicates to me we are valuing one type of leadership. Yeah, that, I think that was a really good moment for me in, in realising that to really, I guess, unpack the talent and diversity of thought requires an authentic leadership on my behalf and, I guess, internal exploration in a sense. Going back to being the chair of the Victorian Government's Youth Congress, um, I want to explore a little bit there. There you are representing over a million young Australians what were the top areas of conversation? What did they want most to be on the agenda, those young Australians? Mm. Well, it was back in 2018, but from the top of my head, I think it fell into four main categories. The first was um, mental health, then education, employment, housing and homelessness. So those were the top four. Um, And we predominantly focused on mental health, knowing that it is the largest killer of young Australians. So when you're making a case to the government, that's pretty compelling statistics. But I do think that, you know, on top of that four, I think climate is absolutely another one. And I think that young Australians are acutely aware and fearful of the impending reality of climate change in a way that the government is absolutely not even going coming close to what's necessary to address that. So I think probably those issues plus climate would be really what young Australians are, are worried and, and thinking about. So you also worked, I'm just looking at some of your career points here at um, 180 Degrees Consulting, which was a youth-led social impact consultancy that spanned 30 countries. So tell me a little bit about the work you did there. Yeah, so what's interesting about 180 Degrees is that, um, as mentioned, it's entirely run by young people. And essentially what the concept is, is to advise um, organizations that are socially impact minded. So that's particularly social enterprise, but also wider organizations that have a mandate for social change. Um, and usually it's for no cost or a very minimal cost. And young people, um, I guess, get the tools to learn about formal consulting, but also, like I said before, use those youth led strengths, which is risk taking, open mindedness and creativity um, to really assist usually under resourced and um, under-resourced under organisations to improve their social impact. 
And what was really great about my position is that I was working with social impact organizations around the world from the US to, you know, Serbia to Kenya and, you know, all the way to China. I think they were focusing on, you know, improving air quality through like a card, cardboard air filtration model. There was just so many, such a diversity of, of ideas. And that was a really great experience because I think that it can be so easy to get caught up in the negative, but just hearing and, and listening to the passion of often pretty young founders talking about their vision within their respective countries was was really interesting. So essentially my work there was connecting those organisations with young people at universities, pairing them up and um, so they could start projects and focus on improving the impact. So it's really interesting. And when you worked there at 180 Degrees and you worked with some of the larger organisations, did you ever feel they were surprised by how young the team was? Well, I didn't think so, only because I think they knew what they were getting themselves into. So I think they knew that it was largely led by young people. You know, even working with the teams and seeing the heart that young people really put into these projects, it wasn't just something to stick on a resume. They really understood the vision and the importance when they were working with these organisations. And I think they really appreciated that. Again, noting that these were often, you know, smaller organisations, but even the larger ones, um, I think they could really understand the strengths that young people could bring. It was actually very refreshing. I, I didn't, I didn't face much resistance in that space, but in other, you know, in other political spaces, I, I certainly have faced a bit more resistance uh, because of um, because of the youth aspect. Because of the youth aspect, and also I think pushing for change in government can be, you know, quite frustrating. And I've always pushed for something like a federal youth advisory board or to have more, you know, national youth consultations. And even if we look at the current Minister for Youth, um, there is some funding towards mental health, but there's just such a lack of, I guess, engagement with young people and really wanting to find out what young people are thinking, their ideas, their concerns. So I think that space is harder to pierce through versus organisations and social impact organisations especially. You're currently Plan International's Youth Ambassador. So tell me a bit about that role. Yeah, I've been with Plan since I was first year uni, I think, and I initially began with them just through their Youth Activist Series, which is a program for young women interested in creating social change. And that's focused on upskilling and, you know, through campaign knowledge, through media. And that was a really great experience. And then um, was fortunate to be named their Youth Ambassador. Um, and eventually, soon it'll be up, not soon, but I'm um, going to become the national ambassador, which is really exciting along. Congratulations. Thank you. With, yeah, Benjamin, Laura, and Jan Fran. So that will be really great. But um, what's great about Plan is that they really understand the value of youth, youth co-design in a way. So they recently launched a report that's focusing on girls' vision for a future after COVID-19 that was created by young women. And, you know, again, engaging with a wider portion of, of young girls to, to imagine what that future could look like. And giving the tools to young women is really, really important because often I think young women are expected to sit down and listen. But there is so much scope in unpacking the lived experience um, and also telling young women that actually you have the just as much as anyone. You should be able to think about what future you would like to see and a future you would like to create. And even reading that report and, you know, being with Plan, I think the centre of it really was empathy and having the empathy to realise that this world and the current structures around us need to change and need to recognise, acknowledge and support the groups that often aren't heard. So I think they're doing really great work in that space and, and I guess, encouraging young women that they, they do deserve and should be in these spaces. 
Looking forward from where we are at the moment, um, do you think there's going to be enough changes that will help young people's voice come through even stronger? Huh. I think that's a it's a it's like yes and a no for me. Yes, in the sense that I think even before this pandemic, young people were really finding a strong voice, especially if we look at the climate strikes and even in the Black Lives Matter movement, this is something that's largely led by young people. And I think that young people have a lot of compassion and resilience that I really admire seeing many young leaders that I know that are pushing these causes forward. So in that respect, yes, we have a stronger voice, especially through things like social media. But on the flip side, and as we've seen this pandemic, young people were the first to be punished. They were the first to lose their jobs. If you look at the university reforms that's proposed, it punishes low-income Australian, young Australians disproportionately so, um, the, the economic impacts will be felt by young people possibly, you know, through, throughout the course of our life. So in that sense, there's also a lot of disempowerment. So I guess the way that going forward and something I really hope for is institutional representation. And as I mentioned, that is a federal youth advisory board, that's youth consultation, that's having more young MPs and genuinely young MPs to provide that perspective because right now the economic recovery isn't isn't really it doesn't have any youth representation in a sense and so if we're talking about the role of young people and young people's voices they have to also be in these spaces so i think that we are having a voice advocacy wise but i would like to see a structural openness and willingness to engage with youth voices as well. Mm. And I see what you mean, as in youth have a, you know, are really active on social media, really active with those causes, but there's very few young MPs, uh, and we're not the only country that has, um, you know, a, a, a cohort of MPs that has waited to being slightly older. What can we do there specifically? I mean, are young people attracted to taking on those kind of positions or is it the fact that there are barriers? I think it's barriers. I think you'd find many young people that if given the tools and encouragement would go for these kind of positions. But I think with my understanding of internal party selection, I think that re- really reflects more about how people view, you know, possible candidates and, and I guess the willingness to put young people forward. And perhaps that would even represent, you know, wider electorate issues where maybe the electorate would see young people and think, oh, they, they must not have the leadership or experience. But um, that's something that I absolutely push back on because, again, if you look at this crisis, this is something that cannot be led by one group of people because the downside of being led by one group, and that includes one age group, is that there's going to be blind spots, especially around young people and the unique kind of impacts and experiences that they will have. Um, so there is a lot of value there. So I think I think definitely more needs to be done on a party level um, and, and I guess, understanding and rethinking about what leadership means. But certainly within young people, I think there's there's definitely an appetite. And I remember sitting sitting in a room with Karima Al-Ansari, who was the former um, Australian representative to the UN, and he was holding a youth consultation with many people from my university. And they all agreed, we don't feel like we're represented in parliament. And I think the, a huge amount of young people would agree. So knowing that, I think we really need to reprioritize who we're actually putting in parliament. And I can, I think having a young person there would be so incredibly inspirational to others. And this is the thing, it has a flow on effect. So we only really need, you know, one, two, three people and the ball will really get rolling in terms of young people putting their hand up. 
Do you buy into the concept or that there is some generational warfare? So, you know, I'm talking, of course, about, you know, the smashed avocado, boomers, etc. Do you buy into that? I think there's a lot of frustration, but I think that warfare is the wrong word. And I think that instead of warfare, it's are we really listening to each other? And I think the frustration about the whole boomer thing is that, again, young people don't feel heard around these issues. And when I talk about things like gender and race, the pushback I get is largely from older individuals. And when you talk to young people, a lot of this is just like, yeah, of course, you know, of course we need climate action, of course we need gender equality, and of course we need to improve how we value and support culturally diverse communities. It just seems obvious. Um, yet when we look at society and we look at the groups that are affected, it is still very much gendered and also, you know, marginal, like affects marginalised communities. So I think if anything, it's just kind of an outcry of not feeling like um, we're being heard and it is disappointing to hear the smashed av- avocado comments that young people just need a hug and they, you know, just this really, really strange opinions. And I, I just think it's so, so deeply unhelpful. And it's unhelpful on either side to be, you know, tarring entire generations with the same brush. And I think that the, the way that we should reframe is understanding the strengths of young people and, and genuinely valuing it. And yeah, so I, I don't think it's warfare, more frustration than anything. Who are the leaders that you uh, look up to? Hmm. I think, I mentioned it before, but I think Jacinda Ardern's response in this crisis and to previous crises have been really incredible. And I really, I really resonate to what when she says to lead with kindness. And I think that's a really undervalued trait, unfortunately, in politics, to be kind. Um, and also to have the humility in realizing that you don't have to be the strong man and, and know absolutely everything, but you, to bring in others that have that knowledge and have that experience. And again, that ties back into the importance of gender equality and cultural diversity in parliament. So I think I think of Jacinda Ardern and it definitely, it definitely inspires me um, looking at how pragmatic and level-headed she's been, but also carrying empathy in everything she does. And I think if Parliament's even a fraction more empathetic, that's a really good step. Do you see the potential for a new form of leadership coming out of this? I mean, you talk there about Jacinta Ardern talking about leading with kindness and empathy. Do you think those, which which aren't things that we traditionally think of when we think of leaders, to be fair, um, do you think those kind of traits are going to be more welcome in the future in the field of leadership? I would hope they would be. I think the only fear I would have is that following COVID, um, there is a danger, and I um, cite uh, feminist scholar Cynthia Enloe's work here, she says that often in times of crises, urgency can be used to silence women and silence minorities because it's viewed as, oh, well, we need to focus on the economic recovery and then we'll think about these issues. Leave it to the men and then we'll sort it out and, and then we'll address your issues afterwards. And that's a really terrible way of looking at it because if, if we look at past examples like wars and outbreaks, um, women and, and culturally diverse communities are, are usually really disproportionately affected. So there is a chance we could go either direction in that we take on a more Jacinta Ardern style of leadership and lead with empathy and really, when especially after this pandemic, think about how we can create, you know, an empathy-centred response. Um, and that includes, you know, a gendered budget. That includes, um, you know, supporting young people and those at university, et cetera, et cetera. Or we can stick with the status quo um, and just try to, I guess, hammer in, you know, economic policies that reflect the past and actually don't adequately prepare us for the future. And, and we can see that with the 
recent proposed university reforms. So I think there's kind of a crossroads here. So Yasmin, you're, you know, an acknowledged female leader, you know, you, um, you know, you've led some really amazing organisations. Um, last year, you were the youngest member of the Australian Financial Youth, 100 Women of Influence and the top 40, under 40 most influential Asian Australians. If we want to see more people like you, you know, more female young leaders, what do we have to do? And what do women who are listening to this, you know, who want to be a leader, how do they prepare themselves? I think the first is amplify. And there are so many amazing young women that do feel strongly, you know, about whatever whatever particular issues that they're passionate about. And the role, I think, of existing female leaders is to really to seek out those young women, um, especially things like mentorship, unfortunately, and I've, I shared this when I was on Q&A. Um, often it can even be a space where, unfortunately, young women can often be sexually harassed by you know, <laughs> um, experience that and kind of, you know, trying to, trying to get into these spaces and, and feeling pushback. And it's really hard to navigate. So I think more than anything to have female leaders reach out to young women and provide the, I guess, the bridges to, to enter into spaces, to use their voice, to develop their sense of leadership is really powerful because unfortunately, I think if we look at, um, you know, pretty negative um, experiences, you know, of particular female leaders is the treatment that I've worked really hard to get to where I am and I've faced sexism. So therefore, I don't think that I need to help you. I think that's a really unfortunate way to look at it. So I think realising that if we want to be creating better Australia, it also starts with young women and really opening those doors in that regard. And also giving young women the freedom to genuinely speak their mind because to do this, and especially the young person, is pretty scary because you have pretty little power compared to larger organisations or government. So to openly criticise that can be quite a daunting experience. So I think having allies and supporters really goes a long way in terms of um, empowering young women to speak up. So thanks for joining me for the Leadership Lessons, the female perspective that you need for the decade ahead. Our producer is Lisa Gevelargan. And if you like what you hear, make sure you're subscribed on your favourite podcast player and please leave us a rating. To find out more from us, visit womensagenda.com.au and looking forward to catching up with you at the next episode. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.